We have been using Micah as a church to reflect on a uniquely Christian response to issues of injustice and oppression. If you remember all the way back to the introduction, I suggested that Christianity provides a robust and holistic response. But because it's robust and holistic, it's also unique. And there's a danger today of feeling the pressure of injustice in our world so extensively that we turn to other places for solutions. When in actuality, Christianity not only has deep resources to address these things, but as Christians, we must think about these things, if you will, Christianly. Okay. Where we are in the book of Micah, he has basically just shattered the paradigm of expectation for Israel. Israel sees themselves as the children of Abraham, therefore as God's people who have a mission in the world, and that mission involves a little piece of real estate called Israel. And they live in a time where because of their own injustice and because of oppression in their own world, God is going to remove them from the land. But for Israel, that sounds like the end. And Micah is suggesting, no, it's the beginning. For Israel, who's about to be removed and exiled to Babylon, it sounds like death. And, and Micah agrees, it is suffering, but he says it's more like labor pains. It is painful, but it will actually lead to birth. And we saw last week that that birth is primarily fulfilled through the birth of the Messiah, of the one who's to come, of Jesus Christ. But this whole section has been focusing on life in the interim. Okay? So Micah sees hope. He sees a destination in mind. He sees that God's going to set everything in the world right. But he also recognizes that the place that Israel lives is just like the place that we live, a place of suffering, of difficulty, of exile, of waiting. Okay. And so he's suggesting from week to week here what it looks like to live as the people of God in that place. And we've already seen that that place is to be present among the nations, okay? In other words, that even though they are being disciplined by God and sent to Babylon, they are also going as missionaries. They are also going as uh, a people who represent God wherever they are, okay? And because of that, there's truths here for us this morning because our mission is the same. It's parallel. Like them, we live in the interim. Like them, we are waiting for Jesus, in our case, to return. Like them, we are in the midst. And like them, we have a calling and a ministry. And so I want you to read with me as we pick up here in verse 7 and read through the rest of chapter 5. Sorry, chapter 5, verse 7 through 15. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many people, like a lion among the beasts of the forests, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, 
and I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds, and I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes, and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from you and destroy your cities, and in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Let's pray. Father, we need your help and your insight this morning. We need you to fulfill your promises that your spirit would teach your people your word so that we may be your people in the world that we live, in the lives that we have. I ask God that as we look at this text, you would continue to shape our vision and understanding and our purpose as a church here in Seattle and in the neighborhood of Capitol Hill, as a people among the nations, as a people in the midst. We pray that you'd help us with this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that hopefully you've started to pick up on about the prophets about books in the Bible like Micah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel, one of the things that I hope you've picked up at this point is the way that the text uses tension and even paradox to make us think more deeply. In fact, in this passage, there is so much, wait, what did you say? Hold on a minute. There's so many places where you're like, wait, I don't understand how these pieces fit together. There's so many places where it seems like a pivot to a completely different topic, like the prophet has some sort of spiritual, uh, you know, ADHD, where he's like, oh, and I also want to talk about this. So we have to slow down and go, wait, how does this fit together? And I want you to notice that uh, when we do so, here in these eight or so verses, we find a real tension. Okay, notice the first tension with me in the difference between verse 7 and verse 8. Okay, the picture in verse 7 presents Israel, God's people, in the midst of the nations, like dew. That's the driving metaphor, right? Like the water that we find along the grass and among the flowers, the way that the earth just kind of um, refreshes itself morning to morning. And that's clearly a picture of blessing. And that makes sense, because as we've looked at before, Jeremiah writes a letter to those living in exile, and he says, hey, while you're in exile, seek the peace of the city. Pursue doing good to Babylon, which is mind-blowing, because Babylon is the oppressor. It is the conqueror. It is the one who drove them out of their cities, who killed their friends and families, who frog-marched them hundreds of miles and repositioned them in a new place, right? But they have a mission there, and that mission is to be a blessing. What's strange, though, is, is look at verse 8. The language is the same, and the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, But the metaphor is different, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which when it goes down uh, through, treads down and tears in pieces and there is none to deliver. Is that the same idea as dew in the morning? Is it a picture of blessing? Is it a picture of peace? No, it's, it's violence. It's 
It's, uh, you know, it, it's almost a curse as opposed to a blessing. It's a detriment to the nations and not a positive. It's antagonistic instead of beneficial. But we're not cherry-picking these texts out of two places in the Bible and saying how, to recognize, or how do we reconcile these things. They're side by side, right? They're connective tissue. Even the language here is put parallel. Now, if you spent any time in the Psalms, you've probably recognized that the way that Hebrew poetry works is different than English poetry. English poetry focuses on, um, for example, the concept of rhyming, right, and cadence and these types of things. Hebrew poetry does that sometimes as well, but the DNA of Hebrew poetry is what we call parallelism, meaning that line A and line B match. Okay? And a lot of times, it's the same language with a slight adjustment. And we see that here. Again, look at the similarity between verse 7. The remnant of the Jacob shall be in the midst of many people. And the opening line of verse 8. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many people. Do you hear the repetition there? But, but Hebrew poetry isn't about repetition, which would be really mundane and boring. It's about parallelism. And so usually what we find is a slight adjustment. So it will say, the Lord is on the mountain. The, uh, God himself is on the high place. Right? Do you hear how that's parallel but not the same? How it's synonymous but with different language? And so when we read here and we get the setup, we expect the punchline to be parallel and yet it's a huge contrast. This happens in the Psalms too. We call it contrasting parallelism, although it's relatively rare. My point for stretching this all out and showing this to you is that the author is setting us up to try and fit these ideas together. And let's be honest, in our own world, in our own times, with our own sensibilities, we find ourselves challenged. We go, you kind of have to pick a lane here. You can either be a violent victor over your enemies or you can love them and pray for them, right? Which is it? Which are we called to here? But I would suggest to you, as provocative as this language is, it's not unique to Micah. In fact, I would suggest to you that you find it in the very beginning statement about the purpose of God's people back in Genesis chapter 12. Okay? In Genesis chapter 12, God calls one man, a pagan, living in the land of Tehran. He calls that one man and he says, come out of your city, Ur, and come to a land that I will show you, and I will give you descendants, and I will make you a nation, and I will give you a land. But he also says, and I will make you a blessing to the nations. Okay? In other words, when God calls Abraham, it's not about preserving a single little piece of humanity and writing the rest off. It's not about him going, well, I'm really not fond of the rest of the nations, so I'm going to make one of my own, and at least they can be my people. Even there, there is a universal agenda, right? An international mission. Even there, I'm pursuing you, Abraham, for the sake of the whole world, okay? But the other thing it says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, is those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. Even there, the tension of the presence of blessing and cursing coexists. 
In the same way, this tension or this dual reality, we also see in our calling as Christians. Okay? Now, we are not the nation Israel. We don't have a land. We don't have a government. We don't have an army. We are not a nation, nor should we be nationalistic about the nation of Israel or any other nation. We are a transnational reality called the church. Okay? But we still find our identity in the people of God just as Israel did. In fact, there's a direct continuity in this prophecy here and when Jesus sends out his disciples and says, go into all the nations. That is the fulfillment of what we're reading right here. And so it's not surprising then that we see the same dual tension, the same paradox, if you will, in the New Testament talking about us as the church. Listen to Paul's words here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. As here in chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Okay? Like we saw in Micah, here he sees Christians being called to spread the fragrance of Christ in the midst, right? To diffuse themselves throughout the word and as throughout the world and as they do so to smell like Jesus. Okay? But notice how that plays out here in verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. And so the aroma is the same. We smell, like I said, like Jesus. We diffuse ourselves throughout the world, but the way we smell is both death and life. And let's just be honest, those are very different smells, okay? The smelling of a, of a you know, rotting corpse and the smelling of a freshly bloomed rose are not the same thing. So the presence here is blessing and curse. It's salvation and judgment, okay? It is both invitational and loving and antagonistic. It is death and it is life. Okay. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is that the way that the church functions in the world has three components and they all go together. Okay. All of these components involve our place or our presence in the midst of. Okay. And so what God envisions for Israel as he exiles them into Babylon is not some sort of monastic, cut off from the rest of humanity, flee from the world and live in the wilderness and preserve your purity type of faith. Instead, he says, you're going to live as Jews in Babylon. In the same way, Jesus sends out his disciples to spread across the world and live in the nations, but not as the nations. In the world, but not of the world. To live in a way that is public, but different, right? And then it has these three components. And the first two we've already touched on, a component of blessing and a component of cursing, okay? What does it mean to be as do? What is it in our calling that we are to be a blessing in the midst of, to seek the peace of the city? 
We've actually spent a lot of time talking about that in the weeks past. But here's still, I think, the simplest way to sum this up. If you were with us before we began the book of Micah, we looked at Jesus' call, Behold, I am sending you out, my disciples, my followers, as sheep in the midst of wolves. And one of the things that I showed you during that message was that one of the primary phrases that defines the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of his church is the phrase, doing good. And it spreads across the New Testament. If you weren't here for us, I'd really encourage you to listen to that message online uh, or just even do a word search with some Bible software and realize that every author of the New Testament, almost every book of the New Testament, basically says, here's what you're supposed to be as Christians. You're supposed to be people who do good. Or to put in the language of the Sermon on the Mount, we are not just to love our neighbor, but even to love our enemies, to seek to do good to those around us. As we saw last week, we are to be a people who pursue justice, because justice reflects the character of God, and so that means that we care about our neighbors and their problems, okay? In other words, what I'm suggesting is if we as Calvary the Hill exist here in Capitol Hill and it doesn't in some way impact the neighborhood, we're doing something wrong. We should make a difference in where we live. Okay? And again, not because we will save the world, but because we have been saved and we want to point to a world that is to come. Okay? And so we should be a blessing. Earlier in Micah, he criticizes those who lay in bed at night scheming ways to take advantage of others, thinking up new schemes to make money or to, uh, to uh, enrich themselves at the fleecing of other people. What I would suggest to you is this idea of being as due means that we as Christians should be those who lay in bed scheming ways to bless our neighbors thinking up creative ways to do good to those around us. And honestly, culturally where we're at, especially for many of us who are younger, that's a mission that just, or a message that just naturally resonates. There is a built-in part of our generation that recognizes the world is a mess and wants to make a difference. But what do we do with the other half? What do we do with the fact that we're not just called to be as dew, but as lions? Not just called to be as the fragrance of life, but also the fragrance of death. This is just as important. Think of it this way. Jesus calls us in the Sermon on the Mount to be salt and to be light. Salt preserves. That's what it does. It stops and holds back corruption. And therefore, especially in a pre-refrigeration world, it is an essential part of health and wholeness. But salt doesn't just preserve, it also stings. Consider light. Light takes the darkness and makes it bright. Light changes the world around it, but it also exposes This two-sided nature always goes hand in hand. And so what we are to be as a church is both a blessing and a testimony of judgment. In other words, we're to seek the peace of the city, but we also, in our own existence, demonstrate that the world as it is 
is under judgment and is coming to, coming to an end. Okay. We both seek to bless those around us, but our own existence demonstrates that the world falls under judgment. Now the question is, what does that actually look like? And I, I just want to sh- suggest to you a few avenues of what it looks like. First, it looks like non-participation. Okay. And you guys have experienced this on the most personal level. Have you ever been in a place where maybe there was something that was a little bit, even for you, a little bit of a gray area or something you even knew it was wrong, but you decide to engage in it anyways, and then somebody spoils it all by, by refusing, right? Go, go back to your, your junior high years and a cigarette's being passed around and, and you take it and take a drag because the peer pressure's there and then the person next to you refuses. Do you remember the way that feels? It feels like judgment. It feels condemning. Okay. The way the New Testament puts it in 1 Peter is it says, those around you are surprised when you don't behave like they do. Okay? And so one of the ways that we go about being the sting of salt is by not participating, by abstaining from the unjust and harmful practices of our world. Okay. Now again, I think that's something that sometimes resonates with our, our, um, with our culture uh, and our time um, because we've all seen when people... Uh, you know, decide to stop shopping in a place or become a conscientious consumer. But we're talking more about where we spend our money. We're talking about a broader cultural reality. And so, so non-participation is one. And I think you can see that in Jesus's ministry. There are aspects and facets of the religious leaders of Jesus's day that he just has no parlance with, no freight with. He's not involved with. He's not involved. He distances himself from the activity of the temple and his involvement with the, the large leaders and powers of his day. But on the same hand, or, uh, or on, at the same time, we see more than that in Jesus' ministry, and I would suggest we need to see it in ours as well. If we're to be salt, if we're to be the fragrance of death, it also sometimes involves confrontation. We don't really do questions on Sunday morning, but we can talk after service. We'll talk about that after the service. Um, so the question, or the second way that we go about this type of um, judgment in our world is confrontational. Okay. And I don't think you can really get around that because what are we reading this morning? The book of Micah. Is Micah confrontational? Yeah. He walks into the places of power of his day and he calls them out. Okay. And we see Jesus doing the same thing. Right? In fact, he reserves the strongest and harshest language of his public ministry for people in power, for the religious rulers. He says things like, woe to you, you whitewashed tombs. Right? It's strong language. It's confrontational. I would suggest to you that the church also has a prophetic place. We need to speak for righteousness. We need to speak for truth. We need to confront Now, the way that we confront is also important. And what we see is that confrontation needs to be loving. In other words, the goal is not to condemn but to save. It's more of a warning than a threat. 
It needs to be aligned with the righteousness of Christ and not our own righteousness, right? Jesus speaks very heavily of those who are judgmental, and by that he means people who condemn others to lift themselves up, okay? But nonetheless, there is a confrontational component, and so we should stand against practices or, uh, or organizations or even people who are producing harm in our community, we should defend. Now this one, again, I think sometimes resonates with us, sometimes doesn't. But here's just a single sentence I've been reflecting on for years. There's a defense that Job makes of his own character in the book of Job. And it is considered to be one of kind of the great paradigms of a Jewish ethic. What does it look like to be a good and righteous Jewish person? And Job presents this. And this is one of the things that he says. He says, I have not neglected to break the teeth of the devourer. Okay. In other words, there are those in his, in his area who are eating others. The carnivore language like Micah uses, devouring other people. And he made it so that couldn't happen. So there is a confrontational part. So there's non-participation, there's confrontation, but there's another one that is also really significant. And for that one, we have to get to the third part and the third surprise of the book of Micah. Okay. Super strong language in verse 8. Here is this young lion, look at halfway through verse 8, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversary, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Okay. Strong, victorious, violent language. But then notice the pivot in the next verse, verse 10. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land. Over and over again, he takes that word cut off that he used in verse 9, and he applies it not to the enemies of Israel, but to Israel itself. And again, if you aren't reading that slowly or patiently enough, uh, you may miss it, but you would still be jarred by the transition of topic. How is it that Micah can go from talking about the victory of Israel over their enemies and then suddenly talk about the complete dismantling of them as a people? In fact, when you look at what he's going to cut off, notice the first thing he says, I'll cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. And even when he says in verse 11, I'll cut off your cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. What is that? It's military power. He says, I'm going to get rid of your weapons and your defenses, right? That's clearly what he says here. I'm going to take away your armies, and I'm going to take away your fortresses. So again, we have this tension. How is it that there's going to be victory over the enemy, and at the same time, I'm going to remove this military presence? And he doesn't stop there. Look, he continues. Verse 12, I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortune, I'll cut off carved images and your pillars from among you. What is this? This is all idolatry. This is all worship that doesn't align with worshiping the living God. Okay? And so first he says, effectively, I am going to make you peaceful. And, and not necessarily peaceful in posture. He's going to make them peaceful because they don't have the option. Right? He's going to disarm them. Okay? 
Nobody is more prone to diplomatic options than those who have no options, right? Than those who have no way to protect themselves. But the second one is, is effectively to make us pure, to get rid of sorceries, tellers of fortune, carved in images, pillars, idolatry. Let me try and put these things together for you. What I would suggest to you is that Micah is laying out a picture of dew and of lions, of blessing and of cursing, or of life and death, but here he lays out a means of that that is surprising. How are they going to be lions? Not by becoming the strongest military power on the face of the earth. Here, effectively, we find the third one, and I think it's the most significant. Okay, so there's non-participation, there's confrontation, and I don't really think you can remove those from the mission. But the primary one is transformation. Okay. In other words, taking Paul's metaphor that we are the fragrance or the aroma of Christ both to death and to life, that's not something that we produce or manufacture like a real estate agent, you know, who bakes cookies before the open house. It's not that type of an idea. It's just the manifestation of what God is doing in our life, okay? Or what we see here is that this interim period is dew and lions, but it's also purification. It's also what we would call as Christians sanctification, or as I said earlier, it is transformation, Here's what I'm trying to suggest. I'm suggesting that the way that God has designed his people to work is that he sends them out into the midst and their very presence impacts the community around them. But the primary way it does that is because God is impacting the church. That's what I mean when I say transformation. When we started this church, there weren't any. There weren't any churches moving into Capitol Hill. There were a few long-standing old faithful churches, and there were a ton of churches in name who had really no connection with the neighborhood. They existed here, but there were bars on the windows. The building was locked Monday through Saturday, and they just drove into Capitol Hill because they owned the property, and then they drove out, and that's all there was. And I would suggest to you that when, when we came, my idea was that we were going to move into the neighborhood and make a dis- difference, absolutely. I would even suggest to you that the idea I had was that we would come and we would tell people about Jesus and we would see them changed. In fact, a key verse for us in those early years comes out of 1 Thessalonians, okay? And it says, for people everywhere have heard how you turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord who will return, okay? So that passage was primary, and that's what we wanted to see. We wanted to see transformation. But I saw it as a transformation out there, that we would be the vessels of transformation out there. And then, over time, and as God has worked in our church, and as I've revisited and, and rethought about that verse in First Thessalonians, I've realized I read it completely wrong, and I read our mission here completely wrong. Listen again to what Paul says to the Thessalonians. For people everywhere have heard how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. 
Now, yes, people are hearing about it. The gospel is going forth. But how is it going forth? By the transformation. What I'm suggesting to you is now I realize that God hasn't called us here to change the neighborhood. He's called us here to publicly change us. To publicly change us. That is what I think is suggested in these closing verses. And it also reconciles the, the paradox here of effectively a victory without violence. Effectively a uh, confrontation, but a uniquely Christian one. A confrontation of love. It's the way that you, you come to understand here um, why the church exists in these places. In other words... The church is not the people God has saved, and since he saved them, therefore they have a mission to go out into the world and tell other people. That's absolutely true, but it's partial. It's incomplete. The church is the people that God is present tense saving and doing so publicly. And when we invite people into it, we invite them to join us in what God is doing as us, as a participant. And when we do good, we do good because God is changing us in these ways. And that's the natural expression of that. It's why Paul says in Romans that the love of God is being shed abroad in our hearts. It's as if it's overflowing. It's why Jesus says that uh, he will place in us a fountain of living water that will flow from our hearts. Right? And so the fountain is here. The effect is out there. Let me show you that this has to be the case in verse 15 there. God says, And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Two questions for you. One, who is bringing judgment? God says he's going to do that. Right? In fact, even, I don't know if you remember seeing this a few weeks ago. We'll see it again later in Micah. Even when it comes to the day where the nations finally decide to wipe Israel off the map, It's God who shows up and saves the day. Not a strengthened Israel. Not a nuclear superpower. It's none of those things. But the second question I want you to ask yourself is, in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Here's the question. Obey what? Obey what? Where in this passage is there any connective tissue for that phrase? I would suggest to you that the idea of obeying here is seeing the evident reality of the living and saving God in the people in the midst. What he's talking about here is those who don't respond to the new life that is available in the church. Now again, I think if we just took this passage this morning, just verses 7 through 15, we'd have to talk a lot longer to fill in the gaps, to counterbalance things. But when we put this in everything we've been learning across the book, we learn something truly essential, which is that the church is called to be a public witness. But that public witness is 
not something to do. It's something being done to us. And again, that doesn't mean we don't tell our neighbors about Jesus and invite them to believe the same way we do. And it also doesn't mean that we don't go out and do stuff to bless the neighbors around us. It means that all of that flow from a deeper reality, both the recognition that we are the ones that need to change and the recognition that that change is available in Jesus Christ and pursuing it. If you want to see God at work in our world, lean into confession and repentance. Lean into the truth of God's word in your own life and respond to it fully and completely. Recognize that the work God wants to do, he wants to do not just through us, but in us and then through us. And then we also know what that looks like. Because when it's functioning, we will be both blessing and curse. We will both be the fragrance of life and the fragrance of death. I would suggest to you that some of us, by nature, are confrontational judgment people. Some of us, by nature, are just prone to act, prone to resist, prone to fight, prone to be strong. And others of us are prone to focus on the blessing to keep our head down from that stuff, to do the good, to seek to love our neighbor. But that's why this transformation is so important. Because we're not called to be what we already are in the world. We're called to be transformed into the image of Christ, who is the whole of humanity, a full manifestation that knows when to bless and when to provocatively speak of coming judgment that knows when to seek the good of even our enemies and knows when to resist those enemies to protect the vulnerable, that knows that always, 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 that God's work begins in us before it goes through us. This might not be a helpful metaphor in our current time. But what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that Christianity is contagious. Okay. And so what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that you basically want to keep in contact and keep your viral load high. I'm suggesting to you this morning that we don't just go out and tell people, but we go out and live as those who are transformed as those who are being transformed. It's the same idea as a fragrance, right? You just be in the place and you experience the change, the transformation like a cup of tea, okay? And the fragrance takes care of itself.